0: Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So, grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. There are a few verses of Scripture that you hear quite regularly around here. This is one of them, Romans 15, 4 for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort the word could also mean encouragement that we through patience and encouragement of the scriptures might have hope Paul, here in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4, wants us to know that the Bible—he was actually referring to what we now call the Old Testament, because when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, there was no such thing as the New Testament. There was no such thing as the Gospels written down in some organized fashion. So when Paul was referring to Scripture, he meant the Hebrew Scripture. But we can— confidently extend the application of this verse to the now what we call the whole bible no doubt with his implied consent paul wants us to know that the whole bible was written for our learning in the greek it is didaskalia didaskalia by the way didaskalia is not just a bible word didaskalia or didaskalia is a word a Greek-speaking person would use whether they were talking about the Bible or not. Remember, one of the most—we've talked about this before—one of the most important discoveries of the past 200 years was that the Greek used in the Bible— was not the so-called classic Greek that Plato and Aristotle spoke, or more accurately, wrote. We don't know what kind of Greek they spoke, but we do know what kind of Greek they wrote, and it's not the same as what was used in the Bible. It was not the same Greek that the Bible was written in up until recently, scholars had some difficulty actually translating portions of not only the Greek New Testament, but also the Septuagint, which you know is the Greek-language version of the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, over the past couple of centuries, archaeologists specializing in the ancient Greek world started digging up everyday objects. And by the way, Egypt was one of the places they found lots and lots of objects with Greek writing on them. Now you say, that's unusual. Why Egypt? Well, remember, Alexander and his generals took over most of that part of the world. And one of the things that made Alexander's empire so successful administratively is that he actually for lack of a better term, imposed the Greek language and culture on those he conquered. As a matter of fact, in many instances, Alexander would force marriages—force may be a strong word—he would encourage marriages of his Greek soldiers to the conquered people, to the, to the women of the conquered people. So that the Greek culture then became very prolific in that region. And remember, Alexander was a few hundred years before the birth of Christ. That's why Greek was so important to the region where Christ was born. It is no doubt, there is no doubt in my mind that one of the languages our Lord Jesus spoke while he was in the flesh was Greek. Paul spoke Greek. Peter probably spoke Greek, because the Greek language and culture was prolific in that region, stretching from Europe almost all the way to India. So, there was certainly buried in Egypt and elsewhere these objects that had Greek writing on them. Now, that's not really so unusual to have objects with stuff written on it. I have a cup on my desk with the word peace written on it stamped into it that's what the type of objects these archaeologists found buried in the sand they found objects with greek letters on them these objects however that had the greek letters on them seemed a bit unusual they had an unusual form of of Greek written on them. Eventually, the linguists that studied the writing on these objects realized that this Greek was the Greek spoken by the regular folk. These were regular-day objects, so naturally the regular-day objects had the language of the regular-day people. These regular-day people spoke a regular-day form of Greek that we now refer to as koine Greek, koine meaning common. And then once this was discovered, once this form of Greek was discovered and deciphered, biblical scholars realized that the New Testament was largely a koine series of documents. It was a series of documents, the New Testament documents, were written in a koiné form of the Greek, not exclusively, but largely. This greatly aided the translators, and the Bible came alive as never before. The Bible was written in the language of the common people. Now, when we better understand how certain words were and are used by the commoners, if you will, some people think of that as an insult. I certainly do not. Do not. I believe there's great honor in being a commoner. But when we gain a better understanding how certain words are used by the commoners, we in turn gain a better understanding of what the Bible has to say. Remember, we say this all the time. Greek is one of those highly nuanced languages. And you have to know the full meaning in most instances of each Greek word and phrase in order to get the meaning that God wants to give you, because God is a very complicated mind. He's an eternal mind, simple in ways, but complicated in ways, because there's so many facets. Greek language is perfect for that. So once we discover the meaning of Greek words to the everyday folk, we get to learn more of what God is saying. That's why in our lessons, we do our best to see how certain words are used in the common tongue. And that often means how those words are used outside of the Bible. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, our didascalia, that we, through patience and comfort, through patience and encouragement of the Scriptures, might have hope. Paul says that that which was recorded in Scripture, listen to me, was there for our dida scalia, our understanding. The King James uses the word learning. The Revised Standard uses the word instruction. The NIV says these things were written to teach us. Now, all of these are excellent translations. every everyday Greek-speaking person would use didaskalia to communicate the idea of learning, instruction, and and teaching. But like so many other Greek words found in the common lexicon, commonly used outside the Bible, didaskalia, when used in Scripture, carries with it an additional sense, a God-given sense, a nuance not encountered when spoken by a native Greek speaker when discussing non-biblical, non-spiritual things. Now, let me just quickly say, Studying Scripture isn't just some cold, intellectual, academic exercise. We're not seeking scientific answers. This isn't meant to fill our heads. It's meant to fill our hearts. We aren't analyzing literature. We're absorbing a love letter. When the writers of the New Testament Use the word didascalia; they often, not always, often attached the idea of God's will to it, as Paul does here in Romans fifteen four. Now I know that is confusing, but let me try to explain it a little differently. Let's focus on this passage in Romans. When Paul mentioned that what was written in Scripture was for our learning, Paul rolled in the idea that this learning was intentional on God's part, that this learning was a part of God's will. The didascalia, it wasn't an accidental learning. It wasn't you picking up some brochure that was talking about a famous statue and say, oh, I didn't know that. And set the brochure back down. This was learning meant for you to learn something intentionally. In other words, it was God's will, it was His idea that we be instructed by the things that were written in Scripture. God wants you to know Him. So You have His desire for you behind everything that's found in His Word. It's called His Word for a reason. Now, as an important aside, the inference that we can gather here is that there are things that happen that are not included because God didn't want them included. Whatever wasn't written may have instructed us, but not in the way that God intended His Word to instruct us. This is why we tell you all the time, stop trying to use the Bible as some all-encompassing record of what happened in the world. Not all things that happened could instruct us on the things God wills us to know. Now, there isn't anything wrong with the things not mentioned in Scripture. It's just that the knowledge of those other things is not vital to God's plan for us. The reason you don't see dinosaurs mentioned in Scripture is because the specific knowledge of dinosaurs does nothing for God's will for us. Again, nothing wrong with discovering Dinosaurs, I believe that they do have a place in our journey, but God didn't include them because that wasn't a part of his purposeful instruction. I've used this illustration before. Let's say you and I are having coffee and we're talking sports, and I say, oh, by the way, did you know that one time I met Malcolm Glazer? You say, well, who's Malcolm Glazer? Well, at the time I met this man, he was actually the owner of the Tampa, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then I continue and I tell you that I spoke briefly with him and how I told him that I appreciated what he was doing and making that football team more competitive than it had been in the previous years. Well, In my retelling of the story to you, I do not mention that the Tampa area also has a baseball team and a hockey team. Now, my omission of those facts does not make the story inaccurate. My intention was to inform you of a football story, and mentioning anything else would have been extraneous. Now, suppose at a later time, you discover the truth of the existence of those other professional sports teams. You don't call me up and say, you liar, you deceiver, neither would you say that i was ignorant in some way just because i did not include those other professional teams in my story, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't say i'm hiding things from you, would you? You wouldn't say, well, you know, you just weren't bright enough to mention those baseball teams and hockey teams. God included some things and excluded others. We do that all the time when we're telling stories except if you're Catherine. For some reason, Catherine has to give you all the details. Listen, never ask Catherine for directions, because you'll get a whole lot more information than you really need. She's mad at me now. There is a reason for what's included in the Bible, And that's what Paul is saying to us in Romans 15, 4. There are certain things we need to know, we need to learn, we need to be instructed on for God's will to be activated fully in our lives, and those things he had written aforetime, and since God took it upon himself specifically to have specific things written aforetime for our learning, then we should make it our goal to study those certain things. That's why chapel exists. That is the purpose of all of our lessons, including the one we're about to begin today. Now, of significant importance to our walk with God are the things written aforetime concerning how God dealt with the Israelites. It is written, and therefore it is His will that we know it. That's why we teach about the Feast of Israel. That's why we teach about the tabernacle in the wilderness. That's why we teach about the lives of Abraham, Moses, David, Ruth, etc. Now, in particular... The way that God dealt with the children of Israel in the desert is very instructive to us, and I want to focus a little bit on that today. Now, of course, I'm sure you're asking, how could the events in the lives of an ancient people traveling through an ancient desert have any bearing on me? Now, obviously, none of our regulars ask that question, but from time to time, new folks join in, and we have to cover some of these questions as they come up. You see, as I have mentioned to you many times before, the church is in the same position, if you will, as the Israelites were, especially as described in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the record of the traveling, limited record though it may be, of the traveling of the children of Israel through the desert. At least that's where we find it. The children of Israel were the conduit, listen to me, through which the physical arrival of the Messiah was conducted. That was their purpose. That's why God chose them to be the physical conduit by which the Messiah would be brought into the world. He was physically born into the world through the tribes of Israel, and what they did and how they interacted with God and the things He expected of them were all designed toward that purpose. Let me say that again. The Messiah was born into the world through Israel, through the nation Israel, through the children of Israel, through the tribes of Israel, and what they did and how they interacted with God and the things he expected of them were all bent toward that purpose. The church today is the conduit by which the spiritual arrival of the Messiah is conducted, and God is guiding us through that effort. Very similar roles, and therefore much, not all, but much of what happened to the children of Israel and God's instructions to them have a direct instructive bearing on the body of believers to this day. Therefore, it is important for us to focus on their lives, and today we are looking specifically at the period of the wandering in the wilderness to help us to understand our own roles as members of the church, as the members of the body of Christ. Now, as you probably know either from your Bible or Cecil B. DeMille, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites for more than 400 years. Now, when the time came, the time God had designated, a man was raised up to deliver his people. You know the story. Moses, by the power of God, led those people out of Egypt And at least two and a half million Israelites began a journey that would last for 40 years. Now, it wasn't supposed to last 40 years, but we'll save the reason it did for another time. We're laying foundation for something else today. Our topic today is knowing you're a Christian. Now, When we are talking about this word knowing in the sense of knowing that you're a Christian, we are using it in what I would call the active mode or the active sense. This type of knowing isn't just being aware or being cognitive or being informed that you are something. I'm of Sicilian birth I know that but that there's no way to actively be a Sicilian I just am I have knowledge of it oh okay very often when people read my last name they start to talk to me in Italian I don't understand a single word of Italian except that it sounds a lot like Spanish and I know a few words in Spanish yes my Italian friends are a bit ashamed of me for that I'm not proud of it myself. Nonetheless, I know I'm Sicilian, but this isn't the kind of knowing that we're talking about. This is knowing something in the sense that our actions display or reflect or are a result of this knowledge. We can say realization is a bit better of a word to use. Now, if you have your Bibles open, and I hope that you do, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Colossians 2, 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now, if, if you have a King James like I do, you will see the word so is in italics. Now, you remember what that means, right? If you see a word in italics, then it means it is a word that was added by the King James translators. That is to say, the word in in italics was not in the original language manuscript. The manuscript that the translators used to translate into English didn't contain this word, then therefore I want them, and I'm honest, I'm an honest translator. They were honest people. These were great people. The translators of the King James Bible were fantastic. They decided that if there was a word they were going to include in the translation that was not in the original manuscript, they decided to let us know that by putting the typeset in what we today call italic. That's very common to find in the King James Bible. Now, in many instances, these additional words, the ones that we find in italics, do have indeed helped us. That's why they did it. In order to improve our understanding, they would put certain words they would add certain English words to aid the English reader in understanding. And most of the time, that works. But here in Colossians two six, it does not work. This additional word, so, actually diminishes, in my opinion, the power of Paul's original statement. I suggest we read it without the added word, so. Paul originally said in Greek, this is the English equivalent, as ye have therefore received Christ the Lord, walk ye in him. It's much more forceful that way. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. No. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk ye in him. You received Christ in a certain way? Walk that way. Now, whenever you see the word walk used like this in Scripture, it's actually symbolic. When you see the word walk, it refers to how you live your life. Today, we would say how you carry yourself. Paul is saying that Your walk, your life, the way you carry yourself should be a reflection of the knowledge of who you actually are. You entered into the family of God. You should walk that way. You should carry yourself that way. He is saying you should walk around as if you already know who you are. Your knowledge that you're a Christian is a result of the foundation of faith that you have as a Christian. You are who you are. Act like it. You cannot be a Christian and live a life of sin. You cannot be a Christian and be an alcoholic. You cannot be a Christian and be homosexual. You cannot be a Christian and be a prostitute. It doesn't work that way. You can call yourself ex-Christian all you want to. I'm a prostitute Christian. I'm an adulterer Christian. I'm a bank robber Christian. You can call yourself anything you want, but that is a misnomer. You live your life as a Christian, or you're not one. And you don't get to decide what that means. All right, let me take that back. You can decide whatever you want, God gave you that power. But that doesn't mean you're a Christian. You may say, I'm a gay Christian. You made it up, because there is no such thing. You've decided that exists. It doesn't. Why are you hammering on the gays today, John? I don't know. Do you hate them? No. Are you afraid of them? No. I love everyone. Because that's my job. John said, if we say we love the Father and hate our brother, then we're a liar. But that doesn't mean I agree. Love and agree is not the same thing. If I saw somebody drowning in a pool, and they say, I'm drowning, and I said, I agree, they're going to die. Or I'm going to save them, one of the two. I don't hate the drowning Christian. I'm going to save the drowning Christian. Because that's my job. That's your job too, by the way. You must walk as if you know who you are. It's nothing new. God has always expected that. Even under the most difficult of circumstances. When given a dire prognosis from the doctor, you don't fall to pieces. You're a Christian. You know that God does, does that mean, John, you, you're living the perfect life, that you don't fall to pieces, that you don't sin? Of course, that doesn't mean that. You, every time I preach, I preach to myself. I know that I fall short. Of the knowledge of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. I know that. I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. No good preacher preaches outwardly only. The doctor says you have cancer. Do you fall apart? No, you're a Christian. You know that God has said he's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. When you carry yourself in that knowledge, when you walk as if you know God is your healer, people will notice. Why are you not falling apart? The doctor said you have liver cancer. I know that God's in charge. Now, when an atheist gets bad news from the doctor, all he has is hope that the doctor knows what he or she is doing, and that's not much to go on. Now, I respect doctors, of course, but they're just human, just as human as you and I. And if you don't believe me, ask one of them how much their malpractice insurance is. Basic math and common sense tell you that the higher the risk, the higher the insurance premiums. Doctors, as reflected in their high insurance premiums, are at a high risk of making mistakes, and that should make an atheist very nervous, because as I said, that's all they have, but not you. You believe in the Almighty who has told you He loves you, and that He is in charge of whatever is pressing in on you. It's called faith. It's called active knowledge. And it's how God wants you to carry yourself. And again, it's it's nothing new. Which brings us back to those 40 years in the desert. To this day, the Jewish people refer to that history, that time in their history, perhaps more often than any other in their long and continuing and very often very sad story but to repeat my point from earlier just to get us back on track whatever happened to the israelites we need to pay attention to those 40 years hold vital clues for those of us that seek a closer relationship with him paul as he so often did it succinctly when he said in 1 Corinthians 10 11 now all these things happened unto them for examples it says in the King James it means examples all these things happened unto them for examples and they were written for our admonition our warning when studying this period period of time these 40 years of wandering we see that there were three very important considerations for each and every member of the nation. Now, as I sort of alluded to earlier, we we almost we know almost nothing about that time period. And just about the only thing we do know is that they were regularly on the move going from place to place. Now, if you were to look at a map that traces the movements of the children of Israel during this time, it would look so higgledy piglitty as we've been using lately. It looks random, as if somebody is just wandering around, bouncing into sand dunes. There doesn't seem to be a pattern or a purpose to it. It seems unguided. Well, that's Not the case at all. It was guided, guided by none other than God himself. The entire time that those children of Israel spent in that wilderness, they had the Lord's presence constantly with them. He was always with them. He never left them, which is also a lesson for us. It's a hot, frightening desert, but God is there too. Never forget that. The environment is very hostile, yes. Everything is pressing in on me. I'm afraid I'm going to not make it. Well, Jesus is there too. As God was with the children of Israel constantly in the wilderness. You already know this. God was there in the form of a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. That was the visual representation of God's presence. They called it the Shekinah. It's called that in the Hebrew scripture, Shekinah. God would be seen in the form of either a cloud, a pillar of cloud, or a pillar of fire. Now, typically, those pillars would be seen over the tabernacle. Again, you know this. More specifically, over the Holy of Holies. However, there was, from time to time witnessed when this column, this presence of God would move. Whenever they saw the column of smoke or cloud and fire move, it was a sign to the people that they were to move, that God was ready for them to move. When the pillar of cloud or fire moved, it was a call to march. Now, practically speaking, as you can imagine, there's a lot of preparation associated with moving two to five million people from place to place there are things to tear down there are things to pack animals to gather up etc but more important than all of that was the movement of the people there had to be order if this march was going to be successful there had to be a guiding principle otherwise Death resulted. Staying within the parameters of the guidance was important. Otherwise, people died. Now remember, these things happened for our example, and they were written for our admonition. We should pay attention to the journey, to the march that these people went through because they happened for our example and they were written for our admonition. There are two things, our example and our admonition. The harsh tone of the word admonition is purposeful. It properly communicates the original. These things serve as our example and a warning. The warning, listen to me, is that God has His ways and He will not compromise, nor will He bring His will down to ours. I don't like to do it this way, God. You don't do what I tell you to do, there's going to be death. When those Israelites decided to think for themselves, when they started worshiping idols, which they did all of the time, Death resulted. And it wasn't just death in the form of punishment from God. It was death, natural death that happens when you jump over the fence and you turn your back on natural protection. God's presence in their life was their natural progression. When you turn your back on God's natural protect protection, you are not going to make it. Therefore, there has to be order. There has to be rules. There has to be laws. I'm, I'm sure that more than a few occasions of the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire moving happened before everyone was up out of bed and had their coffee. Oh, God's moving. I haven't even had my eggs yet. I'm going I'm to have breakfast and then I'll catch up with you guys. You guys go ahead. Death. Has to be order. Order. What God said then is what he means now. There has to be order. There there is a set of rules that must be followed once you're a child of God, once you've saved, there are a set of things that you must do in order to keep yourself safe. Now, as we just said, when the pillar of cloud or fire moved, the march was to begin. But before that could happen, each and every member had to know three know three important things. Number one, who he was. Number two, where he belonged. And number three, what he was to do. Now, you may be thinking, now, why is this so important? Listen. On this journey, you're not just a passenger, you're a conductor. In other words, you have a responsibility and you must know your place and what's expected of you. Knowing your place begins with knowing who you are. Here's just one example of what we're talking about, Numbers 118. And they assembled all the Numbers 118. I think I said that too fast. Numbers 118. And they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month, and they declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers according to the number of the names from 20 years old and upward by their poles. In other words, each adult had to know what tribe he or she belonged to, The second month, they declared their pedigrees after their families. That just means, to whom do you belong? To whom were you born? Tragically, I don't know one Jewish person who knows their pedigree. Do you know any Jews that know which tribe their family belongs to? Part of God's connection to those people was their connection to their fathers. They're called the nation of Israel because each person was related to a person named Israel. Israel was a person before Israel was a nation. The person Israel you may better know as Jacob. Sometime in Jacob's life, God changed his name to Israel. God himself changed his name to Israel. God said that Jacob would be known forever as Israel. Eventually, the person Israel fathered 12 sons, and 10 of those sons and two of his grandsons each became the head of one of the tribes or families of Israel. As that family grew bigger and bigger and bigger, it became the nation of Israel. And every member of that nation was expected to be able to trace their lineage to one of those sons of Israel. And by the way, for some reason, those Israelites did not forget their lineage Those 400 years as slaves in Egypt, if ever there was a time when the Israelites had an opportunity to turn their back on their family lineage, it would have been then. They were surrounded by pagans. They were even, in many instances, worshiping pagan idols. They had lost connection with their, quote, religion, but they never lost their connection to their family. Why have they lost it now? I don't know. It's not a judgmental question, though it may sound like it. I just find it tragic. Most Jewish people can trace their lineage back to their European ancestor. Jewish people of Polish descent, Jewish people of German descent, Jewish people of Lithuanian, Russian. They can all trace their roots that far back. Why they can't trace them to their original families is tragic to me. Side note, that's all. Every person at the time of the Exodus knew their lineage and they were expected to declare their pedigree before any march began. Before they followed God into the wilderness, each person was told, declare your pedigree. The Amplified Bible renders it, they declared their ancestry. Who were you born to? john 3 3 jesus answered and said unto him verily verily i say unto thee except the man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of god except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of god listen if you don't know that you're born from above then my friend you're not a christian If you don't declare who your father is, if you aren't sure if you can pray our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, then you are still on the outside looking in and you have no place in this wilderness march and you're no good to God. That's harsh, John. That's harsh. We've put up with a lot today. Now that's harsh. Is it? If you aren't sure, if you belong to God's family, then you don't have faith that what Jesus did for you was adequate. If you're not sure that you're saved, that means you haven't decided if it's effective or not. You've taken the decision-making power and put it on yourself. You have put the judgment on yourself. When you say, I'm not sure if I'm saved. You must know where you were born. Either you are born or you're not born from above. Accept the man, be born of water and of the Spirit. It's clear what he means except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. When you reach the entrance to the kingdom of God and you don't know who your father is, you will not be allowed into the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And if you don't know if you're born of water and of the spirit, then you're not. When the people way back in the desert were asked, who do you belong to? It was a way to declare their place in the plan. Why? Because your responsibilities are tied to who you are. Your destiny is determined at your birth. It was that way then, it's that way now. Certain tribes had certain responsibilities, both on the march and when they were staying put. You were born into a certain family, you were that kind of a tradesman of some sort. And if you don't know who you belong to, then you're no good. If you aren't sure that you're a Christian, then you're not one. That's it. Well, how do I know, John, that I'm a Christian? Read your Bible. No that when you give your life to Christ for God so loved the world that he gave him his only begotten son so that whosoever shall believe in him shall have eternal life if you know that then you have eternal life I'm still not sure read some more but pray some more. I'm not, a, I'm not much of a praying person. You better get in the habit of it. Because that's how God is going to give you your marching orders. We don't have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire anymore. God gives the marching orders in your prayers, in your relationship with Him, in your communication with Him. The Bible tells us that whenever the people were on one of these wilderness marches, in the back of the column of marching Israelites, bringing up the rear, so to speak, were those who were, for lack of a better term, mixed up. Those that were ignorant of their origins, those that could not declare their pedigree because they didn't know. There was a place for those who didn't know who they were. were There's a place for those who cannot declare their pedigree. And you know where that is? The back. The back is where you put that which is not important to the forward movement. Want that again? In the back of the column, this is... In Scripture, in the back of the marching column of Israelites were those that were, quote, mixed up. Because they weren't useful to the forward movement. They could not be used. No one's judging you. No one's hating on you. Nobody's blank phobic. It's just you're not, you're, you're, you're not helping. You have to go to the back. The back is where you put that which is not important to the forward movement. Listen, during that roll call, that gathering mentioned in Numbers 118, if someone were asked, are you an Israelite? What tribe do you belong to? And your answer was, well, I try my best. I I work hard at being an Israelite. It's important to me to be an Israelite. I want to be an Israelite, but I'm I'm just not sure. Where do you think that person is going to get assigned? If you don't know your place in the kingdom, what good are you to anyone? If in the confusion of battle, a commander needs a radio man, He needs to communicate a desperate plea for reinforcements. And the unit radio man is not sure if he's the unit radio man. what do you think is going to be the outcome of that battle? In our ongoing war, and it is war, with principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness and high places, we better know we are His not only for the sake of the battle, but we must know who we fight for for our own sake and for those around us. Listen, it's very easy to become a prisoner of the enemy if you're dazed and confused and don't know where you belong. Am I getting through? On our journey, just like it was for those on the Wilderness March, we have to know our pedigree. We must know our family. And of course, you know, I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm speaking of our heavenly family. When that column of cloud or fire moved and the march was on, every Israelite had to know their pedigree. They had to know where they belonged. That's number two. They had to know their pedigree and they had to know where they belong. Listen, when two and a half to five million people moved, it, move, it's not going to be without its problems. There's going to be problems. There's lots going on, people going to and fro, material moving out, about tents coming down, animals probably everywhere. And can you imagine the dust that gets kicked up? On their journey, there was confusion. On their journey, there was uncertainty. it was noisy, it was dirty, it was disorienting. Any of that sound familiar? Isn't your journey a little like that? If not now, it either has been or will be, or both. One thing I can promise you from the Bible is God never promised that this walk, the walk of Christian faith, was going to be a stroll through the park. I can promise you that. There's a lot going around us, and it is sometimes very difficult to maintain our bearing. During those wilderness marches, each tribe carried in front of it a flag. Some call them ensigns. And this ensign, this flag this unit marker was held high so that it could be seen from a distance and it was no doubt designed so that it was visible it can be seen through all of that confusion and dust and activity you've seen old civil war movies where there was a soldier who was responsible for hoisting and holding up that unit flag you've seen that Flag served to orient the soldiers as soldiers as to where their unit was when the battle started getting intense. It was a symbol that flag was a symbol of where that soldier belonged exactly the same way for those Israelites if among all of that hustle and bustle, noise and confusion, some poor marcher lost his or her way, all they had to do to regain their bearing was to look up and see the symbol of where they belonged. If, for example, that wandering Israelite belonged to the tribe of Dan, First of all, of course, they had to know that they were a Danite. They had to know their pedigree. But if they were sure that they were of the tribe of Dan and they wandered off for any reason, all that scared, confused, isolated traveler would have to do is lift up his head and find the symbol of his family, the place where he belonged, and make his way toward that ensign for the tribe of Dan. The symbol on that ensign was the ox. They would look up and see the ox, and they know they need to go toward where the ox was. I'm lost and I don't know where I need to be. There is my sign. There's my symbol. There's the ox. I go toward the ox. For you and I, it's the symbol of Calvary, it's the cross. The cross is our family symbol. No, it's not iconography. I don't mean actually hanging crosses in your house and the bumper sticker and hanging from your mirror. I don't don't believe in that. This is symbolic. Our family is symbolized by the cross. When you and I get lost, when it's confusing and painful and loud and dusty and we don't know where to go, we pick up our heads and we look toward the cross. It's a reminder of where we belong. Yes, I know I'm a Christian, but I'm lost. I don't know what to do. I'm I'm out here making mistake after mistake and I'm And I can't find the right path, and I can't find the right trail, and I look up and I see the cross, and I know where I need to be. Used to be the tallest building in any town was the church. We're told that they would put high steeples in so that no matter where you were in town, you knew where the church was. Every time you open this book, you should be reminded of our ensign, of our family symbol, of our family crest. Every time you kneel down in prayer, you should have somewhere in the back of your mind the image of that cross. It should orient you. The cross is the constant reminder of where we belong. Listen, believe me. I know how hard it is to march through unfamiliar territory. I know how easy it is to get distracted. I know how easy it is to lose the way. But the odds of that being lost, being permanent or even long term is minimized when in our minds we get into the habit of looking for a family symbol, which is the cross. We must know where we belong, and we must know how to find our way back if and when we get lost. And believe me, you will. So you must know who you are, and you must know where you belong. Then finally and naturally, you must know what is expected of you. You must know what God expects of you, and then you do it. As I alluded to earlier, every member of every tribe in the wilderness had a job to do, and the entire community community counted on them to do it. There was a guy that picked up the tent pegs. There was a guy that picked up the poles. There was a guy that picked up the canvas. There was a guy that picked up all the cooking utensils. And if each one of those persons neglected their duty, the entire community suffered. I just don't feel like picking up that tent peg today. Hey, where's Bob with the tent pegs? Last I saw he sitting down at the corner pub. You have a job to do. Do it. That's the point of all this put your beliefs into action this is the definition of biblical faith that's what god's been calling you and i to do since our names were placed in the book lamb's book of life we must take what we know and make it into what we do now many of you are saying well i i want to do all those things you speak of today john I want to make sure I do what God expects of me. I want to take my place and my position in this march, but I just don't know what that is. Well, you know what? That's okay. If you know your pedigree, you see, knowing who you are is the very foundation of a productive life. Because if you know who you are and to whom you belong, then you know where to go for help in finding your purpose. In this world, I believe, trust me, I know the difficulty. I know the pain of not knowing what God expects of us. But because you and I know our pedigree, you and I know where we belong. we know where our home is. we will eventually find out what's expected of us because God the seeker and you the sought will be in the same spot under the ensign of the cross. You don't have to by the way be in church to be the under the ensign of the cross. you know that this is a spiritual existence. Listen, this is of immense importance to you. If you don't know who you are, who are you going to call? To quote Ray Parker Jr. Listen, if Samantha's car breaks down on the way to work, she would call me because she knows she can rely on me, because she knows she's my daughter and I'm her father. She doesn't wonder and hem and haw about it. She doesn't say, well, I've... I've tried to be a daughter to my dad. No. She knows her relationship with me, and she knows that it's the nature of our relationship for me to support her. And so she comes to me. If you know you are of Christ, if you know your pedigree, if you know you are in the blessed family of the Heavenly Father, then all other things are possible. All. If you are sure of who you are, but still not sure of what you're to do, rest assured there is an answer. It is the Father who called you. He designated you for Something. It's his responsibility to share that designation with you. I've told you many times before when God called you, he obligated himself. When he changed your pedigree from of the world to born from above, he voluntarily made you dependent on him. He voluntarily made himself your support system, to coin a modern phrase. When I'm scared on an airplane, I don't bring my emotional support squirrel with me. I bring my emotional support Heavenly Father. And they let Him right on. (laughs) They may not let your emotional support squirrel on, but they're going to let my emotional support, spiritual support Father. Listen. It's more important to him that you know what your job is than it is for you to know what your job is. Go to him in prayer. Ask him what it is he'll have you to do. Now you may be saying, I have been praying. I've been asking and I still don't know my assignment. Well, there are two possibilities here. One, you may not be listening for his answer. You may be waiting for your answer. Sometimes... We make up our mind as to what God wants for us, and by golly, I'll wait a hundred years for God to catch up. That's one possibility. You may be waiting for the answer you want rather than the real answer. The real answer may keep slapping you in the face, but you keep swatting it away because it's not the answer you want. That's one. That's that's the first possibility. The second possibility may not be time. Listen, Haggai was almost 80 years old before his prophetic purpose began. The time from when Moses left the home of Pharaoh to when God spoke to him for the first time, 40 years. He was 80 by then. Jacob waited 14 years to marry his true love, Rachel. And remember, it was Jacob that started the nation of Israel, partially with Rachel. Joseph endured more than 10 years as at first a slave and then an imprisoned criminal before becoming vizier of Egypt. Is all of that because God wasn't paying attention or was somehow withholding important information to torment these men? Of course not. God's timing almost always seems like delays to us. But if we actually take the time to see things through spiritual eyes, we come to the conclusion that God's answers are exactly on time. But it doesn't matter. No matter how long it takes for you to figure it out, God has a job for you. Romans 12, 4 through 12:6. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, just means job or duty. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same duty, deed, office so we being many are one body in christ and everyone members one of another having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us each one of us has been given a gift those gifts are given to us so that we can find our place our purpose in god's plan and sometimes it takes us a while to receive that gift because the time may not be yet You were born to be a slave, and God equipped you to be productive. Those gifts you possess, and we all have them, that's clear from that passage in Romans we just read. God gave those gifts to all of us, each individual, for very specific purposes. God gave us all gifts. He gave us all gifts. Each one of us has received a gift so that we can help him bring about the kingdom of heaven. And the only way that becomes active, and remember, that's the point. The only way that becomes active is when you know who you are, you know where you belong, and you know what you're to do. God wants to hear from you that that means something to you. He wants to know that that's important to you. He wants to know that it's important to you that you know you belong to Him. Declare your pedigree. Find your place in the march and join us in working to bring about God's will for heaven Earth. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.